have a welcome center there with a gift for you and would love to give that to you uh, and get to know you a little bit better. There's been a lot of announcements. There's a lot of activity going on in the life of this church, and that's something that we should be excited about and thankful for. Uh, One quick thing I want to highlight is today is National Orphan Care Sunday, and it has been uh, this special month and day for about 20 years now, and two weeks ago we had this amazing turnout of people here uh, to celebrate and honor uh, this ministry, the 127 ministry, and inside your bulletin this morning you can find out a little bit about what you all accomplished as a congregation. And so today, if, if you've been impacted uh, by orphan care efforts, adoption, fostering to adopt, the foster care system, CASA, a variety of different ways, we just want to say that we acknowledge you and honor you uh, for that important work uh, that you are doing. I mean, if you have your Bible with you, I want to briefly read those first four verses that Roger read for us this morning to hear them again in Isaiah 42, 1 through 4. Here is my servant whom, I'm, whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break. And a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on earth. In his teaching, the islands will put their hope. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for this morning. We are grateful for the gift of Jesus. We're grateful for how his life and death and burial and resurrection have changed all of us and have changed the whole world. God, this morning I pray that you would give me the gift of preaching and teaching and that you would pour through me a word that is true to who you are and who you are calling us to be. God, I pray that you would soften our hearts, keep us open to you and to each other, and may your spirit and grace and love touch us and change us and transform us more into the image of Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Just last month, an amazing event happened in Ogden, Utah, that you may or may not have heard about. Ogden is about 40 miles north of Salt Lake City, uh, and they opened a time capsule in Ogden, Utah, that was from 1887. The history behind this time capsule is really interesting. It was placed at a school dedication on September 27th, 1887, and they buried it with a variety of contents inside, and no one knew about this time capsule until 1959 when that school building was torn down and it was discovered. And inside, there was contents revealed to only two or three people who discovered the box. They resealed it and they handed it over to the local town, and no one had opened it since. It had never been released to the public. And just last month, the local town there in Ogden decided to open the contents and reveal them to the public for the first time since 1887. And inside was an interesting variety of objects. There was an old map of Salt Lake City. There was a copy of the Salt Lake Tribune. There were business cards from Ogden, Utah. There was a Bible and an autograph book. There was even a piece of chewing gum unused, thankfully, still in its wrapper from 1887. All of these different objects reflecting a bit about the town in that time and place. 
And there was an interview with a local archivist at this revealing, and he said something about this time capsule and time capsules in general that, that caught my attention. He said, what makes time capsules so interesting for so many people is they speak this word to the future, but they also showcase what life was like when the capsule was buried. In other words, there's this kind of ancient future dimension to time capsules. Because on the one hand, there is this past tense reality that we are unearthing and we're getting a glimpse into life then. But on the other hand, buried within the time capsule is this expectation of a future word. That there is this expectation that a future word will be spoken to those who unearth the time capsule. And I think that metaphor is important to keep in mind when we think about these prophetic texts like Isaiah that we've been moving back through over the last several months. Because prophetic texts have that ancient future dimension to them. On the one hand, they have this ancient word that speaks about the time and the place in which they were written. But on the other hand, they also have this future dimension. There is this expectation that they are speaking a word to the future. And that's especially important to keep in mind uh, when we read a passage like Isaiah 42 that was read for us this morning. Because it's important for us to get a sense of the word being spoken about Isaiah 42 when it was written. That we really need to understand the past tense context of this letter. Because the book is written and these words are spoken at a time and a place when the people of God found themselves without identity and in need of rescue. There's a a well-known Christmas hymn we'll be singing over the next few weeks that perfectly captures this past tense predicament of the people of God. And the first verse articulates it well. O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appear. I decided to speak that and not sing that this morning. And I think this, this verse is so helpful to give us context of Isaiah 42 because, first of all, we need to see this identity issue. They are captive Israel that the people of God had been captured by the world's superpower, Babylon. They had come into their town, they had come into the temple, and they had completely destroyed everything familiar to them. And with that destruction was a kind of destruction of identity. They no longer knew who they were. And the second thing this verse reveals that's very helpful is that they were mourning in lonely exile. That, That they weren't just defeated, but they were also exiled from their hometown. They were expelled from the place that was familiar to them. And because of this homesickness, there was great mourning and sadness, this sense of they were not sure what the future would hold. And there's these well-known psalms like Psalm 137 where we catch the emotion of this exile predicament for the people of God where we read by the rivers of Babylon, we wept when we remembered Zion. There is this deep sense of loss within the people of God. They no longer have an identity. Who are we now that our town and our temple has been destroyed? And there are people desperately in need of rescue. Who will come and save us from 
this injustice. That is this word that is spoken about the past that we need to pay attention to in Isaiah 42. Because it's into that situation that these words of Isaiah are spoken. Or more accurately, it's not the words of Isaiah that are spoken here. These are the words of God that are being spoken. From the very first verse, we read in 42.1, God speak, Here is my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will bring justice to the nations. Six times in this opening verse, God uses a personal pronoun, either I or my. This is not some detached word from God. This is a deeply personal word from God to the people who are in a very dark place. In fact, you could could think about this moment as kind of a Genesis 1-1 moment all over for the people of God. Because they find themselves at a place of chaos. They find themselves at a place of darkness. They find themselves at a place of emptiness. And they no longer seem to have a shape or a form as a people. And if you've ever been in one of those places that feels dark and chaotic and uncertain, then you know how your world seems to get smaller and smaller and smaller how your options seem limited, how the horizon seems more narrow. And it is into that very situation that God speaks a personal word, a life-giving and creative word to the people of God, because when God speaks, new life is created. And simply by God speaking to the people, their horizons begin to open up possibilities begin to open up on the future for them. And all of a sudden, this new word of God begins to create a new world for the people of God. And if I were to to sum up this new world of God in one word, it would be the word justice. Because as we keep reading, we see this word justice. Arise, here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on earth. In his teaching, the islands will put their hope. Three times in these four verses, the word justice gets used, and we shouldn't skip casually over that fact. The thing that is going to define this new thing that God is doing is justice, which is another way to say God is going to be making things right. God is going to be making things right according to the desires and will of God. Where there is disorder, there will be order. Where there is darkness, there's going to be light. Where there is chaos, the form of God is going to create a just world, not only for the people of God, but like Genesis 1-1, for the entire 
world. For every man, woman, and child, there is going to be the possibility of flourishing. It's going to start with the people of God and extend to all nations. And maybe most significant about these four verses in Isaiah is not just what God is going to do, but how God is going to do it. As Heath mentioned earlier, there is this promised royal servant who God says is going to be the one through whom God does this new thing, this work of justice, this work of making things right. And what is unusual about this royal servant is he is not going to fit any of the categories that the people of God had for what it meant to be a kingly ruler. That in contrast to Babylon, who were bullies, who were dominating, who were walking the way of violence, conquering whatever was in their path, this other one, this royal servant figure is going to come in gentleness, in compassion, not retaliating, not bullying, not putting his his foot on the neck of the least of these, but walking the way of compassion and mercy and gentleness. And so in this moment, a kind of time capsule is happening for the people of God. Because in this moment, there is this promise being made in the past about the future. That that there is this promise that's being buried in the hearts and minds and imaginations of the people of God that will last for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. And so when Jesus shows up on the scene, it is like this time capsule being unearthed and embodied. Because all of a sudden, the people of God see these promises of God being fulfilled, and they finally understand who Jesus is. Jesus is the royal servant of God. I think Matthew's gospel is probably the best depiction of this connection that the people of God made between these promises of God and Jesus being the royal servant of God. And Matthew, in two spots, makes this connection really, really clear, and we need to pay attention to both of them. Because the first one happens in Matthew 3. Matthew 3 is where Jesus is baptized by John. John is preparing the way of the Lord, an echo back to Isaiah 40. And then Jesus comes to John and says that he needs to be baptized by John. And even though John the Baptist resists, Jesus insists that they must do this to fulfill all righteousness. Which is another way to say to do what God desires to be done. So that the will of God might be fulfilled. And so there is this beautiful moment in Matthew 3 at the start of Jesus's ministry where where he takes on the role of servant or he submits in two key ways. First, he submits to John by having John baptize him. But even more largely, he's submitting to the will of God here. He is doing this to fulfill all righteousness so that the will of God might be done through him. And as he comes up out of the water, Matthew describes this scene in language that should sound familiar. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water, and at that moment, heaven was opened. 
And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love, with whom I am well pleased. In this moment, God speaks a word that echoes all the way back to Isaiah 42.1. That in this moment, Jesus is the one that Isaiah promised, that God promised back in Isaiah 42, because Jesus is becoming this anointed one, anointed with the Spirit. Jesus is becoming this one in whom God delights. And anyone familiar with Isaiah would hear those echoes in Matthew 3. But just to make sure that his readers get it, Matthew is going to connect those dots even more explicitly a few chapters later in Matthew 12. Because Matthew 12 unfolds as this conflict between Jesus and the religious rulers of the day. The kingdom of God versus the kingdoms of this earth. And tensions are mounting when we get to chapter chapter 12. And there's this scene where Jesus and his disciples are walking through a grain field on the Sabbath, and the disciples are picking heads of grain, which was seen as a scandalous action by the religious rulers of the day. And so they question this behavior. And the response of Jesus is shocking. Because he says he's Lord of the Sabbath. He says he has an authority that is greater than the temple and that he desires mercy over the sacrificial system of the day. And just to make sure that they understand what he is about, in the very next scene, Jesus does something as shocking and scandalous. He then heals a man on the Sabbath. He embodies mercy to this man. He is showing that through his life he desires mercy over sacrifice. And in this moment, things change. Because for the first time in Matthew's gospel, we read something that we haven't read before. It was in this moment that the Pharisees and religious rulers began to plot how they might kill Jesus. Murder enters the storyline in Matthew's gospel. And then in the very next verse, Matthew gives this description. When Jesus became aware of this, the murder plot, he departed. Many crowds followed him, and he cured all of them, and he ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what had been spoken through the prophet Isaiah. Here is my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved, with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not wrangle or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. He will not break a bruised reed or quench a smoldering wick until he brings justice to victory. And in his name, the Gentiles will hope. Instead of choosing to retaliate against the religious leaders, Instead of responding to them with violence, what we see Jesus is withdrawing and continuing to heal, continuing to practice the way of gentleness and compassion so that the will of God, the merciful will of God might be done. 
And with these two passages, Matthew is trying to communicate something to his readers. He's trying to communicate something to you and me. He is trying to tell us that this long-promised servant of God is being fulfilled in the person of Jesus. That Jesus is the one through whom deliverance is coming, and in Jesus, you are now seeing this promise of God unearthed and fulfilled. And so for Matthew and those earliest Christians, they could say without skipping a beat, behold our God, and could as easily say, behold our Jesus. Because for them, Isaiah 42 was this ancient word. And it had all of these past tense connotations of exile and darkness and chaos and a loss of identity and a need to be rescued. But they also knew that there was this future word embedded in this promise. That Jesus was that fulfilled future word who was coming to do the will and way of God in the most unexpected of ways. Serving. Being gentle. Showing compassion. Not retaliating. Choosing the way of peace in the face of death. Fulfilling the will and way of God through servanthood. And for the earliest Christians, this core conviction about Jesus was not just a conviction they held about him, but it was also a conviction they held about themselves. Because now all of a sudden, they had an identity and a mission. And their identity was simply to continue to be the people that they saw in the work and ministry of Jesus. In other words, that the servant of God in Jesus was to become the servant of God in the church. And so their mission was to continue that work of service and compassion and gentleness, to continue to bring heaven to earth in ways that were peaceful, in ways that showed kindness and love and gentleness, even in the face of death. And so for you and I, the church today, it is so important for us to realize that we stand in this long history of God's work. That we stand in this long line of men and women who have, who have claimed Jesus as the fulfillment of the promise. And that that remains the fundamental core, most important claim that we make but it's not just a conviction for us it calls us to a way of life that that is what we're called to be now that the servant of God in Jesus becomes the servant of God in us in how we treat our neighbor and how we treat our families and how we live out at the workplace that we walk the way of compassion and gentleness and servanthood, that our top priority, no matter what, is that the will and way of God would be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so as we go out this week, we're going to sing a song, and then we're going to be sent out into the world to be a distinctive people to the nations. And the thing that should define us more than any other is this posture of service this posture of servanthood that re reflects the ways and will of God as seen in Jesus. That's who we're called 
to be this week. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful that you have called us into this long history of promise and fulfillment, promise and fulfillment. And in Jesus, we see this beautiful picture of who you are. And we see this reminder of who we're called to be. So whether we are at home with kids, whether we are running a business, whether we're trying to deal with stress at school, whether we're traveling, whether we're going to be on vacation, wherever we find ourselves this week, help us to remember who Jesus is, your servant of God, and through us, by your power, give us wisdom and courage to be those same kind of people in the world this week. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have any response to the invitation, uh, you can come to the front and make that response. We're also going to have shepherding couples in the back. Whatever your need is this morning.